Today's episode of the Hot 4 podcast is brought to you by Brewman version 7, the brand new web-based version of the UK's number one brewery management software used by over 250 breweries. Brewman version 7 has been completely rebuilt to combine the features and functions that have been developed alongside their brewery customers for 20 years with new modern interfaces and intuitive controls that can be accessed through your browser on any device. To find out more, visit the website at premiersystems.com. That's premiersystems.com. I'm Nick Law, and you're listening to the Hop Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hop Forward is a weekly podcast dedicated to the craft beer industry, featuring interviews, discussions, and stories from the whole brewing supply chain from grain to glass. So grab yourself a glass, pour yourself a beer, and get ready to hop forward in the brewing and beer business. Hello, Brewsters, and welcome to an oxygen-packed episode of the Hop Forward podcast. Yes, my friends, there are two acronyms that strike fear in the heart of every brewer. DO, which stands for Dissolved Oxygen, not to be uh, confused with BO, and uh, (laughs) DPO, meaning Total Packaged Oxygen. Quite simply, beer and oxygen, for the most part, with the exception of wort aeration prior to yeast pitching, are not friends. Exposure to oxygen through the process will create anything from old or rotten apples, sherry-like or vinegary off flavours. Uh, it might be soapy, goaty, or have a papery cardboard dullness as the fats, acids, and an array of other chemical reactions between oxygen and beer, you know, do their thing. However, for many small brewers, by which I mean many micro brewers, monitoring DO didn't seem like much of a concern, let alone something you'd invest in expensive measuring equipment. When you consider some of the hand bottle fillers available on the market, which beer would literally splash and trickle into a filling tank from the top. For me personally, as a home brewer turned pro, this was the attitude I was extremely guilty of when it came to bottling beers in-house. I recently came across some documents squirreled away in a folder from a Science of Brewing workshop, which I took part of quite a few years ago now. As part of a two-day course, Sheffield Hallam University analysed various beer samples brought in by the invited brewers, myself included, using gas chromatography to inspect, amongst many other things, DO levels. It pains me to say (laughs) my DO levels were as high as, drumroll please, 570 parts per billion and 430 parts per billion. But the highest DO level out of the group reached a staggering 3,400 parts per billion of dissolved oxygen. To put this into context, I recently spoke to a friend of mine who was a packaging manager for a global brewer who said to me that they can get their DO levels as low as 13 parts per billion. However, just to cheer you up, Sometimes even their beers go as high as 200 parts per billion, which largely end up in those bulk supermarket crates you can purchase for as little as 10 Great British Pounds. 
And yes, that is quite intentional. As you've guessed by now, the type of beer drinker purchasing 20 bottles for £10 probably can't tell the difference between one beer and the next. And just to cheer you up, well, <laughs> me up mostly, the other samples on the list registered anything between 180 parts per billion and just to exclude mine and the aforementioned oxygenated horror, on the upper end, 360 parts per billion. Needless to say, that bottling machine, which I now refer to as the metal cow, is sat in my cellar gathering dust and long shall it stay there. Dissolved oxygen and total packaged oxygen are the hot topic of the day, especially since the advent of canning for the modern brewer. Just to be clear, DO is old news, but since canning became the dominant form that beer was packaged into, it seems to be the primary concern for brewers and beer drinkers alike. And why shouldn't it be? As we've already explored, oxygen destroys beer over time. How quickly depends on your DO and TPO levels. But when you hear beer nerds claim that a hazy IPA that is a mere four weeks old as oxidised, you can't help but feel that they've heard this sexy new term, quote unquote, have jumped on the bandwagon to beat their untapped drum and do a spot of proverbial <coughs> waving, as if to say, Ooh, look at me, I know what DO is. The reality is complex. For example, a large brewery that has had their beer sat on a warm, and by which I mean not cold, supermarket shelf for months on end needs to be concerned with shelf life stability. A beer that reaches its best before end date and is in the bargain bin needs to still taste good, how good is subjective, as we'll see in a moment, as much as it did, or as much as it can, pun intended, as when it rolled off the packaging line. But for a small brewer whose beer is going to be drunk in a matter of weeks, perhaps there are bigger battles to face when it comes to hitting 13 parts per billion. But then again, and I say this as a brewer, brewers are often perfectionists who want to achieve technical greatness as much as they do to create something great. But how much can people tell, really? You know that beer I talked about earlier, the one that had 430 parts per billion of DO? A story about that beer. It was a 3.8% West Coast Session IPA, basically a pale hoppy beer with some bitterness to it, and a mountain of dry hopped Citra, Simcoe, and Mosaic, oh, the Holy Trinity, called Beer Thou My Vision. I'll leave you to contend on Twitter whether that beer style is even legitimate. When it was first bottled, it had this absolutely amazing aroma. It was <sighs> sublime. Within a month, much of that aroma had gone. Hops fade fast. What was left, and keep in mind that as the data shows us, there was 430 parts per billion of dissolved oxygen, was a beer that kept for several months and tasted really good at a party that I took the final case to, even though the hop aroma was much diminished. Would that hop aroma have lingered if the beer didn't have such a high content of dissolved oxygen? Probably. But the beer still stood up on its own. And guess what? Everyone at that party thought it was a fantastic beer. A more up-to-date example, and you might hate me for saying this, 
was a beer I cracked open on this very day, my ill-fated Keller beer. I'd saved some underfills, the few that had actually made it into cans. And this can in particular was the lowest underfill. It was around 200 milliliters when I poured it. I kept it especially because I was interested to see the impact of oxidation on my small canning setup. I counter pressure filled the cans using a tap cooler filler and there was ample headspace. Upon opening the beer, which made a lovely noise, I can assure you that the colour was the same as when I canned it and the taste was really near to what the original beer had been. I will confess, some oxidation had occurred from a sensory point of view. There was an ever so slight staleness about it, but I was actually really surprised just how well it had stood the test of times under the conditions. The conditions, by the way, is an ambient storage temperature around 15C over the course of the summer. Now, I've got no way of measuring my DO level in that beer. So I don't have the facts. I'm purely going off my senses and I am very analytical when it comes to beer. So is dissolved oxygen as straightforward as a statistic on a cannon machine or how long something has been sat in package? Nope. I don't understand why there's so much talk about DO pickup during filling alone. Yes, it's a contributor, but so is an air bubble in a sight glass or a tri-clamp that hasn't been tight enough on your unitank or opening a fermenter to add dry hops. As you can tell, not only am I fascinated by dissolved oxygen, but I'm really passionate about packaging beer and I keep promising myself one day I'm going to do a diploma in packaging. <laughs> Nerd alert! <laughs> um, but I, I have a phrase and you know me, I've always got a phrase for something, haven't I? But I truly believe a brewer is only as good as their packaging. I would hope my double IPA story from Emmanuel's The Last Supper is a testament to that. Now, I'm, I'm sure I've talked about that on previous episodes. If not, DM me, I'll enlighten you. I'm absolutely no expert or authority on packaging. Everything I've learned I've learned from getting it wrong, then going through reference material or the anecdotal experiences of others. But it's such an important topic. It's something I keep coming back to again and again through my own study and hopefully through this podcast. And that's why I reached out for this week's episode to Wild Goose Canning. Wild Goose are known for their canning lines and extensive knowledge on packaging beer. They're taught from the Brewers Association webinar link. The link is in the show notes. Uh, just a big thanks to Dave Haywood from A Hoppy Place for putting me onto this. Uh, covers related topics that most people may never even consider when it comes to packaging. So I was super pleased to be introduced to Laurent Engel, the business development manager for Wild Goose in Europe based in Denmark. Hence the title of this podcast, Danish Guy Talks DO, which we thought would be funny. In this podcast, as you probably guessed by now, Laurent and I talk all things DO, TPO and packaging, getting down to the nitty gritty of canning and how brewers can package beer that they'd be proud to pour, whether it's fresh from the packaging line or from a supermarket bargain bin. If you're a fan of Hot Forward, 
please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is that you tune in. Leave us a review because that helps other brewing and beer professionals find us. Follow us on all the socials at Hot Forward Beers. And check out our website, hotforward.beer, for more ways to help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. Finally, make sure you visit our sponsors this week. Today's episode of the Hot Four podcast is brought to you by Brewman version 7, the brand new web-based version of the UK's number one brewery management software used by over 250 breweries. Brewman version 7 has been completely rebuilt to combine the features and functions that have been developed alongside their brewery customers for 20 years with new modern interfaces and intuitive controls that can be accessed through your browser on any device. To find out more, visit the website at premiersystems.com. That's premiersystems.com. Today on the Hot Four podcast, I'm joined by Laurent Engel, who's the business development manager in Europe for Wild Goose Filling. Hello. Hey, good evening, Nick. Cheers. Hi. How are you? Yeah, doing fine. It's um, busy at the moment. Uh, breweries are running, running, yeah, at full speed, and we see that as well. So that's cool. Um, well, I saw yeah. you had a beer. Yeah. So uh, what what beer have you gone for? So I'm drinking. Um, Really cool name. It's uh, Lust for Life from a can, and it's from Davo. It's uh, it's a surf ale, American wheat ale from a Dutch brewery called Davo. Yeah. Right, and is that where you're based in uh, Denmark? Yeah, so I'm in the Netherlands. I'm uh, a little bit up north from Amsterdam, like half an hour up north. Uh, that's that's where we have an office and a warehouse, so that's where I'm located now. Nice. Yeah. What, what are the breweries like around there? Yeah, so it's pretty cool. You see that where we are, like like up north Amsterdam, it's like yeah, a couple small local ones. Uh, but like friends of ours are five to ten minutes away from here. It's the Moorslotel. They have a lot of fans in the UK as well. They do a lot of thick black stouts, Yay, uh, really kind. cool naipas. <laughs> yeah, and if you go a bit more south, Amsterdam and lower Utrecht, and then Brabant, the southern part of the Netherlands. That that's that's so cool nowadays. I think we have more than five or six hundred breweries in the Netherlands and it's alive yeah it's really cool happy days bro well today we're going to talk all about canning i've and just, yeah. just um when i saw you had a beer i had to get my own beer so um I, i've got this uh moonweight beer co uh, lager okay so uh, the these guys are fairly nice. fairly new they're on the show a few months back i can't remember exactly what number it was um but it, it's taken a while to get there brewery shipped over from china because of brexit and the pandemic um but they finally Ooh, got yeah. there and they promised me some cans so um, i thought i'd crack this one open so here it goes um so just just while Magic i'm magic sounds oh absolutely so oh sounds great <laughs> when it goes into a mic um so just while i'm um opening this bad boy uh, what why don't you tell me about um basically your, your role with wild goose how you got in the beer industry and just what you're up to these days yeah so it's like, um, I think seven or eight years ago, um, my first job, I'm 30 now. So then I was uh, 22, 23. As a Dutch guy, I was looking for my first job after university. Wanted to do something cool. For me, that meant something with, with machines, um, but not in an office only. I wanted to travel, wanted to meet people. Um, 
So then I came across a company here in this part of the Netherlands called Kikak. Um, oh, that's yeah, a manufacturer of yeah. yeah. So yeah, pretty famous in the beer industry nowadays. Um, so I started working there, uh, doing sales, technical sales. Um, did that for five years with a lot of fun. Traveled a lot in the UK, the United States, and other parts of Europe as well. Um, and I focused already there a bit on technical development of filling machines. And then I got in contact with the guys from Wild Goose, already knew the company uh, by name from what I saw in the market. And as an American company, Wild Goose wanted to grow in Europe, uh, really having, yeah, as, as Americans say, boots on the ground, huh? <laughs> yeah. having people here who can really help and talk to the customers instead of uh, the big time difference and big distance. So uh, that's how we started in 2017 with me as uh, the first EU team member. Um, and then, uh, from there together with the customers and thanks uh, to the customers for that, of course, we, we've grown as a company, um, having more than 300, um, canning lines and bottling lines operational in, in Europe. Um, and we have an office in the service center here in the Netherlands and one in Spain. Um, yeah, we're an OEM, eh? original equipment manufacturer for canning lines, but we see that that's, yeah, of course that's our DNA. But if you really want to be a solution or provide a solution in this industry, you need to yeah, have like a uh, an answer to almost all the issues breweries are facing. Yeah. So that means, yes, we're supplying and servicing canning lines, but it's like a complete model. So from, from CIP to, to discussions on DO, uh, dissolved oxygen, equipment financing, um, yeah, we... we I don't say we're expert on all the all the those segments, but we always want to have a solution with other companies or our own, just to um, yeah to to get take some stress away from the breweries because um, you brew an awesome beer, a beautiful beer with beautiful ingredients, and then at the end you have that packaging bit. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, I've been there. It's um, I, I yeah. I've I've got this little phrase which is you're only as good as your packaging as a brewer yeah. and yeah. i think that's so true like you can smash out some fantastic beers and i, I um i worked in a cask producing brewery for um okay. for a while so um you know cask is like the lowest common denominator you know you, you literally put the filling hose into the cask at the bottom and open the yeah. valve and then close it again hit put the the, the jive on the stop and <laughs> there you go yeah. good to go um but yeah when it when it came to um you know a step up to bottling you know that that was a bit of a particularly bottle conditioning that was a bit of a dark art to master but i got yeah. there you know and then uh also never went into cans and uh, which brings us nicely onto today's conversation and you you touched upon a couple of topics there um that that will go over um so b before we do I, i'm just gonna pass comment on this beer um so this, so this is their lager. I've just read the back, just as you were talking about how it's got New Zealand hops in it. N normally, I don't know how. You, how do you find like New Zealand pilsners and and do you know when they've got like New World hops in them? Because like, yeah. what, what's your opinion on them? So I, I, I have quite a strong across, opinion. So yeah, I, to, to be honest, I'm I'm um, often when I look into that part, it's often that we say hey. We have that nice Western style, West American style beer. Mm. I'm, I'm not really familiar with the New Zealand style beers and New Zealand style hops. Sorry. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, no, no. Tell me all about it. Well, I mean, norm- normally when I, I come across like a New Zealand Pilsner or something, um, or like, a, you know, lager brewed with Galaxy or something, I, I normally don't like them. It's just, it, it feels like there's two separate flavours that are pulling against each other. So I was a little bit reticent when I, was, when I read this and I started pouring it, but it's actually really good. Um, they've, they've got a really good balance of um, the, the bitterness you get from um, some more traditional noble varieties. Um, I'm reading some of this off the can. Um, so you, you do get a nice bit of kick, but you just get that slight floralness that you would get with something like oh, nice. um, Nelson Sovens. So yeah, uh, I, I felt inclined to share that. I was just taken back. I was just surprised a little bit. I mean, I expected it to be good beer, but um, when I saw the word New Zealand hops on a lager, I was a little bit pan- yeah. panicked then that I wouldn't like it. But no, it's, it's really good. So, But it's nice, like a, like an evening. I don't know. I, I think the weather is a bit similar. Uh, it's It's like 20 degrees over there right now. Yep. Yeah. So we're both sitting inside, and then while I'm drinking an American weed ale, it perfectly fits an evening like this. You know. Yep. Fresh, crispy from the can. Yeah. That's that's the right setting. So yeah. uh, I mean, while we're talking about canning, I mean the, the the carbonation on this is great, and I mean it's obviously the listeners won't be able to see that, but I mean just look at the the foam, you know, mm. and the the amount of uh, really nice bubbles coming up is yep. just great. So. Wait, let's just dive straight into a question like that. Like, to, how how would somebody canning a beer on a canning line get a beer that looks like that? Yeah, yeah. We also need to be honest. You probably cleaned your glasses properly because that really, really looks good. <laughs> yeah, I have to. Just, I am a bit yeah. of a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. I've tried many things, including like salt, hand rubbing it. Um, no, but. Um, yeah, in all fairness, uh, fairness, there there's a lot coming to uh, to that aspect. Um, yeah, we we see many many types of customers from from big industrial ones um, to to the smaller ones, really brewing and and filling in their backyard, literally. Um, and at the end of the day, they all face the same challenges, uh, Nick. Um, and that, that comes down to brewing the beer, getting it into that fermentation tank, getting it into the bright and getting it into that canning line. And it doesn't matter if that's like a big rotary system, like a million euro uh, uh, canning line or one that you bought like secondhand for 10, 20,000 euros. Um, at the end of the day, we ask a lot of questions when we talk to our potential or existing customers and we try to find out what what their expectation is. Um, and the can that you just opened, um, probably everything was was right there because it, it poured well into the glass. The carbonation level looks really good. Um, but it doesn't mean that that not really to zoom on this brewery, but we still maybe don't know if this brewery uh, knows their DO levels, knows their CO2 levels on tank, in can, uh, the losses that they've had on their packaging line. So th- those talks we have with, with breweries daily. Um, and if somebody says DO, uh, dissolved oxygen, um, or CO2 loss during packaging is really important for me, uh, then the first question we ask is, um, how are we going to measure it? Once our equipment hypothetically is inside your brewing, brewery, inside your packaging room, how are we going to measure the quality that you, that you envision when working with us or maybe with a, a competitor? And that's the first step we uh, we really um, 
need to discuss. It's all about expectations and what is realistic. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, there's a couple of things you mentioned there, which I think um, definitely perked my ears up. What, the first was DO and total yep. DO dissolved oxygen in pack. And the second yep. was um, CO2 lost during package. The thing that I really took note of was uh, about breweries having the lack of measuring equipment because, I mean, I've looked at uh, my breweries literally these days is in my house. It's like we talked about the back garden breweries. Mine's like a, a one barrel brewery in my cellar. I can't afford a, a DO meter. I looked at him this morning. I was like two and a half grand, <laughs> you know, even I can't justify spending that, you know, for something that's in my cellar. Um, no. But so what should breweries do in the event that um, they, they've got a, a, a canning machine, a canning line, or it's a little filler yep. like I've got, and they don't have access yep. to something like a DO meter or a way of measuring CO2, either in the tank ready to go into a can, or as you say, the CO2 that gets lost during packaging. Um, I mean, what, yep. what, what, what sort of things would you do to measure that without, you know, being able to actually look at the cold, hard data? Yep. Are, are there yep. ways or... Is it just a case of yeah. wildly stabbing in the dark? Or? No, 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 certainly. Um, uh, to be honest, zooming in all, on all the steps because uh, CO2, DO, they're really linked to each other. But right. I think it's good to, to have a couple couple rules or guidances that people can follow. And uh, like I said, it's about setting expectations. Eh? Uh, if we know on day one, like you said, it's it's not realistic to spend a couple grand or maybe even more than 10K on measurement devices uh, whilst you want to grow maybe on, on brewing size and brewing capacity or new bright beer tanks for mentors. Um, so the first thing everyone uh, or anyone can do is, is know what or measure what you can measure. And for example, a relatively easy uh, uh, number to find out is your CO2 content when the beer is, is ready to be packaged. And just to share what we see, uh, Nick, we, we come um, to, to many breweries for the installation of the machine. Uh, nine out of 10 times, we really do that on-site, face-to-face with the customer. And we, we come across uh, breweries where they don't know the CO2 level of the beer. So really the equilibrium pressure, the temperature, uh, the CO2 content of the beer. Um, if we don't know that, it's, it's really guessing. And if we say we're going into can, uh, and it's a pilsner or a certain ale, and you expect it to have three and a half grams per liter, or let's say 1.7 to two volume, but it's like five grams per liter or six, uh, let's say two and a half to three volume, that's way higher. Mm. So the first thing we will see then during that packaging run is that the, the beer will behave way different than we expected. It will probably foam way more. So we can certainly slow that filling process down or the filling speed down at that moment to control the foam a little bit more. But the first thing you will see, speed is going down. So it will take you way more hours to empty the tank. Yep. The next thing we will see is that we probably don't get the right foam layers uh, in order to eliminate oxygen. So you might have foam going over um, and you're losing product. So when we know the CO2, uh, going back to uh, to that, that bit, knowing the CO2 levels when the beer is on the bright tank, that's the first good start. 
Okay. Can I just so, highlight something yeah. on that? And so um, I was talking to a brewery today about having a, a Zaman Nagel because um, they, they're yeah. having this problem about CO2 levels. And then yeah. I showed them the price, which in US dollars is something like $1,500. Um, yeah. Listeners from across the world can work that out in currency, but that's that's still quite a lot of money. So, um, I mean, other than having something like that to measure your CO2 levels in tank, is it just literally a case of looking at the, the, the dial on the tank and doing it by taste? Or are there any other methods that you could suggest for testing CO2 levels? Yeah, so it's um, it's always tough to say there's like one rule for everyone because we, we it will be tough to measure a uh, CO2 level when a beer is just transferred to a different tank and needs to be cooled because the temperature will uh, come to a point where it's stable and then we can do measurements. Um, yeah, the, uh, the, the that's the first thing. If you know uh, the temperature, you know the pressure inside coming from the beer itself, then we, with, with a ruler, a CO2 ruler, or maybe with some apps, there are multiple apps available, we can go to the first assumptions. And I say assumptions because you will never know if it's 4.1 or 4.2 grams right. per liter. Yep. Um, but then at least you know something. And the next step is, yeah, going into equipment like you just mentioned, or like the next level, Anton Parr, Hamilton, um, yeah, Pent Air devices. I'm saying, I'm just mentioning those those pieces of equipment, and they're all like five to 20,000 euros or pounds, dollars. It's all in that price range. But it's still good for people to have it on the horizon, because if you ever go to a next level in investment or getting a new loan from the bank, please always think about this step because it's all quality related. So yes, there are assumptions to be made just without those uh, 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 having those measurement devices. Um, and that's, that's the first thing really to do, like I said. Then going from the tank into the canning line, there are again multiple things to keep uh, in consideration. Uh, distance between the bright tank and the canning line or the bottling line. Um, what is the diameter of the hose? Uh, do we have side glasses where we can see if there's still air trapped in the uh, in the brewer's hose in the brew hose? Um, all those things will then lead to uh, beer coming to the canning line, um, and at that point we will see if it's man- manageable or not manageable. Uh, most of the canning lines work around like 15 psi, one bar in feet pressure. Um, and then at that moment, we can still do a measurement on the canning line, uh, but you basically want to just start filling there, getting the beer into the can. And to come back to your question, uh, automated or manual, semi-automated, it all comes down to that um, that foam layer. Uh, because if you're not able to flush the can with CO2 prior to filling, like, like our automated lines are doing and the smaller semi-automated ones, then you can still do a lot with that foam layer of the beer itself. Um, it will never be a safer because if the beer has a certain uh, certain dissolved oxygen level from the tank, and if that's, for example, 300 parts per billion or 400 parts per billion, it's already too high. Yep. But we can still influence the pickup during the packaging run by doing a precise filling with a nice capped foam before the lid drops on the, uh, on the can. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really interesting um, point you make about um, like the sight glasses and stuff, because there's a lot of talk I see online amongst brewers 
when, you know, filler machines come up. And it, it always seems to be that the filler is the thing that gets talked about when it comes to Dio. But, you know, a, a loose hose somewhere, or like you say, beer trapped in a sight glass or something. It's all the amalgamation of the little parts that make up the basically you know it's like adding lots of little things yeah. together before you to make up a hole isn't it when it comes to dissolved yeah. oxygen yeah um i mean another another question i've got with um your dissolved oxygen in pack is so let's say you're filling your can and you, you get that kind of foam level unlike a bottle conditioned beer where you can you can literally see the beer going into the bottle and you get a good idea from sight of um the, the amount of volume of beer that's in there. I know I found with canning that um, some beers, you know, you, you get a good fill, you get a good cap of foam uh, over the the top of the can, and but the, you know that you know the the fill level is right up to the top, and the foam is over the top. Put the lid on, and when I I won't tip this up in, above my Mac because. If there's beer left in it, and it's my Mac's not gonna like that. But you know, if you do that with the can and you sort of give it a shake, you don't really hear like a swishing noise. But there are some beers, but I have packaged where there will be a slight swishing noise. And I've because I've discovered this in a beer I brewed. I was like, I wonder how many other breweries have this swishing. You know, like it's a slight underfill. Um, yeah. And it, again, it is hit and miss. Some breweries you'll do that. You can hear that slight underfill. How much does that underfill, even if it's just slight, because you you thought the foam had come up when it when it was going through the filling machine was was coming up, you know, above you thought oh, I'm getting a foam cap, but actually you were maybe again listeners can't see this, but I'm kind of pointing just slightly under the yeah. orifice of the can, sort of you know the foam was only it, you know the foam was actually coming up to there, and the rest of it was beer. Yeah. How much does that actually impact um, total dissolved oxygen in pack? Yeah. Yeah, that's basically what we we call at the filling station itself at the packaging run. We we call that an underfill, um, and of course you can determine that by a certain weight of the filled can. Uh, you can also do a visual inspection um, because a foam layer to the top of the can still doesn't say that the can is completely filled. Yep. Because if you had that too high uh, CO2 level of the beer, maybe the foam was getting to the top of the can, but half of the can was filled with foam um so we always recommend to do yeah if you're doing automated filling runs or by hand we always recommend to weigh the can include the the weight of the can itself the lid but please check it on every run uh do like an ongoing yeah, maybe a one out of 100 uh we also recommend to do the first 10 20 30 cans because that's the first critical point at eh, the start. But to come back uh, to your question, eh, the underfill, that's where the problem starts already. Because it meant that the can um, was filled with a foam layer, probably not reaching the top of the can itself, like like eh, like we see or want to see. Um, so at that point, we were probably insufficient already in pushing out any oxygen that was staying in the can during the filling uh, run. Um, so at that moment, you're closing a can that is underfilled, that has some oxy oxygen trapped in there. You close the can. Uh, there will be pressure inside from the CO2 of the beer itself. But at some point, uh, at a certain temperature, you also allow 
the remaining CO2 that's trapped inside the liquid of the beer itself, it also has space to get out of there. So what you often see is that underfills are also pretty flat right? Uh, because there was that space to, eh, to extract the CO2 from the beer. So an underfill is, is often a start of, of many problems. Okay. Um, and it can so- be solved relatively easy. And, and it's maybe one sentence, it's quality over quantity. And that means don't fill too fast but feel consistent. Yeah. So when you're filling a can then, and you, you talked about the, the speed and obviously if it's foamier, you want it slower. Um, are you, you're just controlling that with CO2 coming from the top of the, the tank, right? Uh, so what you basically do um, on a machine like ours, but also many other producers, um, we first do a perch of the empty can before it goes into the filling station. As CO2 is heavier than air, it will stay in the top of the can. Uh, sorry, the bottom of the can. So I'm pointing it to you now. Uh, most of the CO2 during that perching will stay here. Then we come in with beer at the next station, the filling station. The beer will stay under that CO2. So it will be beer and a little bit of CO2, but the CO2 mingles with air and goes out. And then at the end, we have beer coming up, coming up, coming up. But from the beginning of that filling, the beer already had a layer of foam on there because that's what the filling process and the fill had, the software and all those machines Mm. are uh, creating. So a little blanket of of beer, foam, CO2. And that's what we need to to reach to the top of the can before we stop filling. And if you don't have that, that that layer of foam, uh, maybe at the beginning, but then it escapes when you have a wrong filling, or you don't have it at all when the beer is, for example, way too cold, um, then you will see problems will start there. Yep. And some people justify that by overfilling the can. That's okay. Uh, sometimes that still keeps the oxygen out of there because there's only beer. But we all know what a can like that is. Uh, if you open it, beer will splash out. <laughs> so that gives different quality issues. Right, okay. Uh, yeah. So what about turbulence when it comes to things like um, valves and bends and that kind of thing in, in your lines? Yeah. Like um, how much does that affect DO or can it affect DO? Um, that That's tough to say. Um, there, there's probably one answer, but that needs to come from people that are really, really detailed on uh, flow control, uh, thickness of lines. And to be honest, when we are creating uh, pipes, tubes, bends, uh, we often do that with people that are really dedicated on the mathematics of, wow. of uh, thickness of products. Um, but I can, I can say one thing, length is really important. So uh, the shorter the hose is, the better, uh, but also altitude. So if you're going from uh, a couple stories higher where the tanks are and you're going to a canning line downstairs, that, that's altitude difference, height difference, uh, that already influences uh, the filling. Uh, can also be uh, in the other way, eh? that, the, uh, that the packaging machine is up on the tanks. We've seen multiple uh, scenarios. Um, it all influences it. So I don't say it's a no-go when, when we see different stuff like that, but it's something to discuss. And if you don't have a supplier that is willing or 
uh, even able to talk to you uh, because they're on the other side of the world or they, they don't have the manpower to discuss these things. Yeah, please make sure that you ask yourself a lot of questions. What are we doing? Do we maybe need to hire a consultant that can help us with this? Uh, because at the end of the line, yes, to give you an answer, uh, yes, it influences it. I don't want to say it's directly an influence on DO, because if you have a completely filled line, regardless of all the bends, the corners, the thickness, if the line is completely filled, that's the first step in success. Um, but I've also seen customers that were going in bends when they were crossing multiple bright beer tanks with their hoses. And at the end of the day, we missed one spot. Uh, there was no side glass. And at that part of the, the, the brewer's hose, there was a big air bubble. And we were getting air bubbles into the canning line. And we eliminated all the influence, influences from the canning line. And at the end, we had to flush and shake all the hoses. And then like a, a liter of air came out and then uh, the issues were solved but again that's trial and error yeah. there was no side class so it was uh, you need to assume sometimes and then you find something yeah, yeah. just before we move on from do which I'm, I'm sure like do is probably the thing that you get asked the most <laughs> by brewers but, um, yeah yeah you know um like when it comes to um bottling beer this seems to be less talk about dissolved oxygen um because you know, the orifice is smaller on a bottle, but are, are there any other reasons why it, it tends to be less of an issue with bottled beer or bottle conditioned beer than with canning? Because like canning and DO seem like synonymous in conversation. Yeah. Um, well, technical wise, yeah, there are a couple differences market wise and brewery knowledge wise. I think a lot of people are also, but when you tell your befriended brewers or your neighbor breweries, I'm looking at a canning line. One of the first thing people say, Hey, look into uh, DO. Yeah. <laughs> so that's something that goes on and on <laughs> in the market. And I'm happy about it because it, it, it keeps us sharp and it keeps the customers sharp, yep. the breweries. Um, Going back to bottling, I think a lot of people bought their bottling line maybe 10 years ago or five years ago. So in a different era of the craft industry. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, a lot of people were less concerned about it. Um, and then technology-wise, most bottling lines, even, even the most simple ones, are based on counter pressure. Um, so you have a more closed filling system um where most of the canning lines are atmospheric um which is basically an open uh, you fill a can that's completely open to the surface to the atmosphere uh and that's where a lot of people got scared because they had the feeling that their bottling machine was closing the bottle completely so there was no oxygen but of course there's also oxygen in the new empty bottle and you need to flush that and during the filling you also need to create create a little foam cap before the crown goes on the uh, the bottle. So basically, to give you an answer, same challenges there, but a different format and a different filling technology often. Yeah. yeah. And um, what, what about can conditioning? Because obviously bottle conditioning, um, you know, was a way that most smaller breweries in particular would package their beers in small pack and that, little bit of yeast in there that's still active acts as a, a bit of a scavenger for oxygen um yeah but some some people are taken to can conditioning like what, what's your opinion on can conditioning how how does can conditioning work with the canning line yeah um first of all it is possible um 
a couple challenges we've came across with customers is that you basically have a can at the end of the day that is not really pressurized by uh, equilibrium pressure of the beer because the beer is often flat, uh, non-fermented. So we've seen some customers stacking those cans high, 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 but the bottom cans were just a bit weaker than a, um, a can filled with carbonated beer. So that, that was like a package uh, slash logistic challenge. Uh, Fermentation-wise, we really need to be sure that the brewery knows uh, what the uh, fermentation process will look like once the can is closed and going into that uh, fermentation room. Um, if there's too much fermentable sugar, and of course that also goes for any packaging run, but if there's too much fermentable sugar and we close the can and we don't do any measurements, if I say we, I mean the, the, the customer, the brewery, um, yeah, you're basically sending bombs into the market. Um, not not really dangerous like bombs, bombs, but of course the option is there that it can goes really into the 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 bomb phase. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, it is all possible. We just say take your time, do a lot of studies on it, do measurements once you've uh, filled it, fermented it, and yeah, just take samples. And if it looks that all the cans have the same internal pressure, same uh, CO2 level then the fermentation probably went really good and you're ready to go. Yeah. Um, but it's all possible. We just recommend to always open the discussion and tell what you're going to do and what you expect from us. Um, but yeah, it's all it's all possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. One, one disclaimer though, Nick, I, 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 we're, we're talking about a lot of things. One thing that just popped up in my mind, when we were talking about measuring CO2 levels, mm -hmm on tank when you don't have any external uh, measurement equipment and an and extract from the tank is, is preferred. So take that and, and get that into a closed system. And that can be a salmon nagel. I know they have some solution there. It can be a, like a salmon and nagel solution, but measuring headspace uh, pressure, top pressure on tank, that, that won't uh, tell you anything about the CO2 levels. You really need to look at the pressure of the beer itself. Right. That was one disclaimer. I was just thinking about we were talking about that, but that's that's why it's so important that people talk to each other, talk to companies like, yeah, Samenagel is an example. And I'm not trying to push their products, but I know they're in that more uh, lower priced uh, equipment, but with a really good solution for people who really want to measure something. Yeah, but we've also used their equipment. We've even modified it to measure cans. So, um, yeah, that was one disclaimer I had. Yeah. So, I mean, that actually, um, before we get away from dissolved oxygen pack and all that, you know, all those other fun things, um, that actually brings me to one question I had about um, fobbing, actually. Um, so, and again, this is a bit of a personal story, but there was a, I brewed a Keller beer back in March and um, I haven't got any measuring equipment, so it's a good case in point. I over carbonated yeah. it. And when I came to put it in can, it just, it was just foaming everywhere. Like, and it was so, it was so tragic as well because it was such a nice beer and it was the first lager I'd oh. done. It was, it was in tank for seven weeks. If it had been an IPA or something, I, I would have been a bit upset and a bit gutted, but not like having spent seven weeks with this beer. I'm like, oh, can't wait to put this beer out. And then for it to just foam everywhere and have to like get rid of most of it. I was, I was heartbroken. For any brewers out there listening who feel feel my pain, 
and uh, maybe have a beer in tank that's they've over carbonated Uh, is there anything a brewer can do to bring that carb level down or are they just is doing that gonna be scrubbing some of the hop aromas and that kind of thing too much like what what would you suggest in that situation yeah uh the hop aromas i i I can't say anything about that i'm really then focused on what we see during runs right and we come across this as well like i said i even came across when we were when i was still in the kick side of the industry meaning the the keck side of the industry um you you come across uh even people that that are almost like (laughs) close to double uh the co2 levels that they wanted to have um you can you can gas off a tank that means you will release some of the top pressure the the tank head pressure uh which allows eh, at some point the pressure the top pressure of the tank will go below the equilibrium pressure of the beer so if if the beer itself has like internal pressure 0.9 bar let's say uh, 13 14 psi but your tank top pressure is always above that to keep the co2 in the beer you gas off that top pressure and you will let some of the beer uh, beer co2 escape it means the beer will start foaming in theory inside that tank but at least you yeah you lower the co2 level um it's trial and error yeah uh, again if you come to the point where you don't have the measurement devices in-house you can still try stuff Okay. You took a sample and you already saw when you poured that sample into the glass. You can you can already see if the beer is way too uh, too high in carbonation level or is it, if it's too low. Yep. Um, but the same when you when you're going into kegs, uh, Nick and everyone else doing this, you can still gas off a keg as well. Uh, you can do that with a key keg even. So there's a uh, it's a beautiful product beer, uh, and sometimes it still allows you to 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 do something about it it's uh it's yeah. a forgiven product sometimes as well <laughs> it's it's often the time pressure in in this industry um uh, regardless if if it's an era like this eh, where where we all stand still for a while and then the demand went went big for mm. takeaway beers and now again on on cask and kecks because uh on trade is going open again uh it's often a a highly time uh, or there's a high time pressure. Uh, beers need to be uh, delivered. Uh, sales already did their job. The brewers did their job, and then the packaging team needs to do it. Yeah. Uh, but we also need to be realistic, and, and we have all kinds of examples. We we've been with breweries where we did those DO measurements on tank. Uh, we did the TPO, so the total package uh, oxygen or to- total packaging oxygen, and we just saw that the canning line was doing a, a good job, a low oxygen pickup but in tank it was way too high and then at some point you also need to ask yourself as a brewery owner or head of production head of operations um do we really want to send this beer into the market and in this case that brewery where we were they just said okay it's gonna be a big big loss it was like one or two bright beer tanks that needed to be thrown away but we canned it uh it was close to uh to to christmas and they, they decided to give it away to uh, local, uh, just just the local inhabitants. Uh, so the village had a lot of beer. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone had the same amount. Um, and the idea was, okay, this this needs to be a fresh beer. Uh, the oxygen will uh, will will 
uh, eat on the quality after maybe three, four, five days, maybe after a week. So drink it fresh. Uh, it's a free beer. And the brewery made that decision. It was a big loss, but it's different um, than sending that for export or sending it to a different city without having control over uh, shelf life or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, two questions off the back of that then. Like, how can breweries increase the shelf life when it comes to canning beer? And secondly, yep. for breweries that maybe have canned beer where there's been a bit of headspace in and they've got some, you know, high, higher levels of um, DO in pack, um, like how, how long will those beers typically last for before they start yep. to stale and go off? Yeah. Um, yeah, you have different different routes there we have the really sensitive beers uh maybe a strong hop flavor that you want to keep um if that's your recipe and that's that's your trademark i'd say keep the keep the shelf life as as low as possible if you think that beer will stay good meaning meaning what people can expect if they read what you've put in there if you think that's going to be good for six months Maybe give it four or five months. Um, and we also have barrel-aged beers, heavy, thick stouts, uh, high ABV beers that can maybe last for 12, 24 months. The decision needs to be made by the brewery, um, people that really made the re recipe, but also the marketing team. Are they expecting to put like a wine into the market, eh? a wine that needs to be put away and, and stored and can be drank uh, after two, three, four years? Or are we putting a beer into the market that we want to supply as a fresh beer, almost like a, like a loaf uh, of bread? Uh, yeah. Enjoy today. And that's where we see, uh, like I said, multiple routes nowadays. Um, People are really selling some IPAs or, or Nipas, uh, wheat ales as fresh beer. And they say, please drink it this week. Doesn't matter that the shelf life will be way longer, but it's more like a trademark. To give you an answer, technically wise, uh, we have limitations. Cans have a certain uh, shelf life as well. So I do this from 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 uh, uh by heart but i think there are some can manufacturers that even say uh, within six months is 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 best within a can uh, oh, maybe okay. even for bottles um but we have customers that give 12 to 24 months and we still talk to the owners and they say man that beer was awesome after two years hmm. uh, so who am i to say it needs to be like this or it is like this uh, but we we have a couple facts and um those cans, they, they will have some influence there. And that's also why, why manufacturers say, well, the shelf life of the can is maybe uh, in combination with a beer or with a wine on can, six months maybe is the best. Um, so again, that's also important to talk to your can supplier then. Uh, after the brewery, we have the whole logistics. So going from the brewery to distribution or to an export, an importer, what are they doing? Uh, are you going to export and are you going to do that in a refrigerated uh, a container or just a normal sea container that will stay in Hong Kong on the harbor for two, three weeks in the sun? Those are all things that sometimes you can control it, sometimes not, but they all have influence. So luckily we see more and more people going into um, a can will be filled, shipped same day, and then going into cooled storage uh, cooled in the in the shop um, and then people take it home and they cool it as well 
I don't want to say that's cool. That's, <laughs> that's like a dad's joke, but that, that, that's how we like to see it. And the beer I have here, that's also one that was filled earlier this week. It's like a fresh beer. We have it in the fridge here in the office and the idea is we're enjoying a fresh beer. And maybe it's a bit marketing wise, but uh, that's also a shelf life thing. We like to enjoy it fresh. So maybe the shelf life of this trademark, this idea, the fresh idea, maybe the shelf life is one month. It isn't quality wise, but perception wise, right. it's a fresh beer. So maybe everyone will think, what the heck is that Dutch guy talking about? But we've seen many, many answers to this question. Uh, like I said, there fact wise, uh, certain beers can't go longer than, for example, four or five months. The can has an influence on it. And there's the market that says, well, we want to drink fresh. So please put a shelf life on there for two, three months because we want to drink it before that. Yep. Yeah. So from a technical point of view with um, dissolved oxygen, so let's say your beer is oxidized, um, yeah. like how quickly does that um, disintegration of flavor start to occur? Yeah. Obviously, I know you said with the, like the hoppy beers in particular, I mean, I know I've had a, um, there was a, a stout somebody gave me, it was like a homebrew stout. It was like 10 point something percent, you know, so it was pretty, uh, pretty hefty. And he had it for a while and it evidently oxidized because I got this, a really sherry like flavor coming through and I opened it. But with the stout, it actually worked really, having that flavor actually worked really well. Whereas obviously okay. if you've got that in, yeah. um, you know, particularly like an imperial stout, if you've got that in a, you know, in a New England IPA, it's like, no. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, yeah, the, <clears throat> yeah. Go. So going back to that, um, of course, again, what we've discussed, the filling process has a big influence on it. Uh, the quality on tank has a big influence. So if you don't know the DO levels on, on tank, um, make sure that at least the filling with that foam cap is really important. And from there it starts. So if we talk about DO measurement, uh, TPO measurement, so total packaging oxygen on the can, that needs to be done within minutes after you filled and seamed that can, because then you already see that the oxygen will go into the beer, into um, basically the flavor of the beer, but also the oxygen will disappear for the measurement. Uh, so within minutes, uh, not after hours, but if you want to measure it on can, you need to do it uh, within minutes. So that's also an answer. The oxygen and the oxidation process will start almost immediately. Wow. And that can will probably still <laughs> taste the same uh, next day and the day after. Um, but we've seen cans after a week, two weeks, and we poured like 100 cans. And half of them were good. And the other half were a bit more brown than the other ones. And then at the end of the line, we had almost like a dark beer, like a stout. And it was an IPA. Um so you will see that. And in that case, it was, I think, a week or maybe two weeks later. But oxidation will almost start immediately after filling. You won't taste it. Um, but if you talk about weeks, months after the filling, and if it was done with a high oxygen level on tank, uh, a normal or a high pickup on the canning line, um, we might not know because we couldn't measure. And then that can goes in the market. Um, yeah, it will be, I don't want to say a disaster, but if that can is on the shelf, 
three, four months later, somebody buys it, thinks, awesome, I bought a really nice local beer, and then you open it and it's way off. Yeah, that's so painful. Yeah. So it starts really fast, within hours, within days, and then after weeks and months, that beer is, I don't want to say completely gone, but in the worst case, it's totally off, different color, like really color, it's it's changing, different taste. Some people say it tastes like more like a wood. If we talk about a, a, an IPA or a lager, it, wood sense, wood taste comes into the oxidized beer. We've also heard cardboard where people say, okay, interesting. What does cardboard taste <laughs> like? <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's really, really an issue from basically day one uh, if it's too high in oxygen. Yeah. So you just described the brewer's worst nightmare. Not if your whole batch is oxidized or there's something wrong with the whole batch. Because at least if it's the whole batch, you can recall the entire thing. Yeah. It's when yeah. it's the odd case. There's, yeah. you know, like there was a filling head that was um, infected or something. So you've just got these, like, it's like Russian roulette, isn't it? You've just got these odd cases where it's like yeah. out in the market. And so you go on untapped and everyone's like, you know, a four out of five, amazing IPA, I drink this again. And then you get someone that's like 0. 0.5, not sure this IPA is sour. Meh. <laughs> and it's, it's horrible. It's horrible. You know, yeah. I've, I've had it happen. You know, it's, aw it's awful. Yeah. You, you know, it literally keeps you awake at night thinking like. Yeah, sadly it is. Yeah. It does. Um, yeah. Before we look at the more equipment side, I've just got one more thing to bring up, like you talked about earlier, which was exploding cans. And yeah. um, so you've probably seen it over there as we certainly have over here. And I, I know it's, you know, it happens a lot in the States as well. You get these breweries where they, I mean, kudos to them. They're trying to be innovative, you know, and use fruits and all kinds of other weird and wonderful things to make beers that look a bit like exploding brains when you open the can and it all yep. sort of bubble up um but then the cans explode um yep. now i'm pretty sure everyone listening to this knows the reason why because you know people are adding fruit <laughs> straight to yep. uh maturation well not even a maturation tank just to the bright tank before they <laughs> put it into can um but are, are there any other reasons apart from adding you know a, a fresh sugar source um to a, a beer you're about to package that people might have exploding cans and other than with those fruit beers letting it all ferment out first what other precautions can we take so that we don't end up with the potential lawsuit on our hands yeah oh that's really an important one um yeah we've seen that way that one as well um <laughs> i like them as well names. the fruity <laughs> ones the crazy sour beers with all kinds of uh natural additives in there um but yeah it's a risk um unexpected uh extra secondary or third fermentation and that's where it often goes wrong um but we've also seen equipment wise infection on the line where the um the cip process and the disinfection wasn't sufficient uh wasn't measured uh, no swaps taken um yeah there can be something on the line that that is adding life into the can that you uh, you wouldn't wish there um so yes, CIP is really important. Um, and of course, yeah, knowing what you're putting into the can and yeah, we can't give any advice there. Well, we, what we do know is that we come to a certain point where we say, that's an awesome beer. Do you really want to send that 
over the complete country, nationwide, national-wide, export, going into different continents? Or do you want to stay local with that beer and see what's happening and get the feedback from the market? If you say I have a, yeah, uh, all kinds of melon, mango, naipas, IPAs, again, I love them. But we come to a point where we also maybe need to say some beers need to be pasteurized. And that that's, a, that's a, I know, a hot topic as well in the market. Some people say, yeah, but but you're making a live product basically that. Yeah, that's true. Pasteurizing with, with 60, 70, uh, 75, 80 degrees Celsius. Uh, yeah, you're killing almost any any life in that beer. But there's a reason for it. Uh, you want to have yeah a constant quality, and a constant quality also means that that cans can't be booming <laughs> into <Yeah>. the market. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, there are again many many answers to this. But um, yeah, equipment-wise, technology-wise, we say the CIP needs to be done properly, um, not only on the canning line, but also all the tanks, all the hoses, all the clamps, all the fittings. Uh, measure it, eh? take swaps. Uh, get analysis from a lab, um, get consultancy in there if you really have the feeling that CIP is really not your expertise. Um, we have a team member here in Europe that is purely focused on CIP because it is, I don't want to say rocket science for me, but it is something that that really allows no margin. Yeah. And the same for pasteurizing. I'm not an expert on that, but we know companies that offer for for third parties that they say we just have a tunnel pasteurizer. Just bring your beers, your sodas, bring it here, and we uh, we can uh, uh, pull it through the tunnel pasteur. And um, yeah, your your beer or maybe soda, wine, kombucha goes safer into the market. And now that we talk about those different product groups, that is something important, by the way. We get more and more breweries that say, I also want to do a hard seltzer. I want to do a craft soda. I want to do kombucha. And some of them are products with a complete different yeast uh, strain in there um, or crazy yeah, sodas, a lot of sugar in there, um, a yeast from the beer production side goes into the tank two meters away where you're blending the soda and that's really a bomb uh, and we've seen many of those even on kegs so if you think about a really practical advice if you think about doing something non-beer inside your brewery i will almost say no go or if you do it within the same site with no protection or no walls in between there please pull those filled cans through uh, a tunnel pasteurizer because uh, else it, it's really Russian roulette. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So when it comes to doing a CIP on a, a canning line, what what are the yeah. best chemicals to run through your canning lines to make sure yeah. it's nice and clean and any other precautions you might want to take? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I can't say this only for hours, of course, because yeah, yeah. we talk about like, 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 uh, yeah, craft canning lines, so smaller machines than uh, than the big rotary systems that we probably see at Heineken or Fuller's. So for the smaller lines, we recommend, uh, in our case, we recommend to work with uh, a caustic replacement or a caustic that is at least aluminum, aluminum. So for American and English, <laughs> aluminum, aluminum. Um, uh, a caustic that is friendly for those parts of the machines. Uh, 
Um, a lot of CIP chemicals nowadays are uh, for cold application. So you can do it uh, 10, 20, 15, uh, 30 degrees. Uh, if you want to go higher, we can do that as well. Let's say uh, 60, 70, up to 80 degrees. Uh, but then we have a different risk, and that's really operator safety. So we have a, um, a hot temperature CIP kit for that, uh, which allows you to go higher in temperature with a caustic uh, or a caustic replacement. Um, so yeah, that, that goes for our specific wild goose lines. Uh, I know many other suppliers have the same recommendations. Um, and then a disinfectant, and that's in most of the cases, uh, for example, a parasitic acid uh, purely to uh, disinfect all the contact points, so fill hoses, uh, clamps, uh, the exterior of the line. Uh, but yeah, just to summarize, uh, operator safety is really important. That uh, uh, maybe the most important one when doing a CIP, um, and then using the the right application. So if you if you use a chemical that is really not for cold uh, use, yeah, uh, please please check with your supplier because else the chemical is not effective, and then we go back to the point infection risk. Yeah. yeah. Funny you should mention parasitic acid because I was just thinking as, as you were talking about, um, for some reason it always comes back to this oxygen. <laughs> um, you know, but um, I, I read recently, I think it might have actually been on the Wild Goose um, website about um, parasitic acid in cans because there's a lot of breweries, myself included, that use the, um, the fill and shake method with um, sanitizing their cans. And I, I've heard that... Um, Parasitic acid can quickly. Parasitic acid can quicken the pace of dissolved oxidization. Um, now I remember having a contract bottle filler come to the brewery where I worked, who said that I remember it really clearly him saying that any parasitic acid in the beer will get consumed by the beer and it's not an issue so when i read this the other day i was like hang on a minute yeah um like what's what's the deal and crack with that and if you're doing a cip on your your lines and you're doing the parasitic acid wash like yeah how much are you in danger of getting parasitic acid even even a weak solution into your cans yeah um for, for the line itself if we so so the canning line all the hoses all the connections you basically basically flush uh, after the parasitic. We we recommend to flush with product, right? So not with water or, or or anything else, just with product. So what you will do with the beer, you will flush out anything that is in there. Anything is always tough to say, but in the numbers that we talked about, all the parts per billion do, you're basically flushing any any oxygen away that you will see from that CIP. Uh, but it's funny that you mentioned this part of the uh, the line. What is even more important, maybe, is rinsing the empty cans, um, because that's a topic we haven't uh, touched. And uh, we we recently uh, wrote a blog post about it, rinsing the cans itself. So by hand or with a twist rinse in feet, that's even more important uh, to zoom in on. Uh, because some people just don't have the proper application there and they start filling a can with a bottom filled with water uh, from that rinse. And if you really have drops in there or just a little bit on the bottom, that will add easily three, five to 10 parts per billion. 
even and with that's water. Normally with water. With water. Wow, yeah, the okay. water contains the oxygen. So we um, we just mentioned it. Uh, rinsing a can is really important because the can can hold anything. It, we've seen dead flies. We've seen rainwater staying in cans. It can happen. Even at, at bigger breweries, it will happen because a pellet can stand outside in the rain. A fly or a spider can go in. So you want to rinse. That's something we recommend. But when rinsing, again, we're looking at DO because you're adding DO with, with water or maybe water in a certain solution. Um, so if you're really, really zooming in on that, um, are you using chemicals to rinse the, the cans that are food great? Um, how much is staying in there, eh? the water or the parasitic acid or iodine? How much is staying in there when the can is going to the fill station? And if it's really, really that important and you're going into automation on the infeed side, so like a deep palletizer, a rinse tunnel, we can also look to ionized air. So ionized air has like a, call it basically a static load that will take out anything from the can. And then oxygen is less of an issue because any oxygen in the can will be there, but it will be flushed out during that next step in the filling station uh, with the CO2 purge. So uh, yeah. We can talk hours about that uh, <laughs> we because it's, if you talk about DO, and eh, now 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 we come almost to a conclusion. There are so many influences, mm. and hopefully, I also uh, we we get to the conclusion that breweries also also need to understand that nobody can guarantee a certain DO level. No canning line manufacturer, no bottling line. Um, if the DO on one can is like one part per billion doesn't mean that the next one will be one parts per billion so it's always important to know what influence as a brewery you will have so the beer on tank uh, do you have proper hoses proper gaskets proper seals um but a company like us like wild goose we don't say our canning line will do 10 parts per billion pickup or five we know we can do it but we can't say that's the pickup because every day an operator has the influence. A leaking casket will have an influence. The bright beer tank levels, the DO levels there will have an influence. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, th I think now we've come full circle, it's pr probably best to leave it there. Um, but I, th I want to just thank you so much for your time on the podcast today. And um, I mean, just the expertise. Um, yeah, I, I, I could honestly talk about small pack and filling cans all day but um i'm aware nice. it's, it's late over <laughs> there so <laughs> oh man we're such nerds um how, how can people find out more about wild goose filling and how can people connect with you if they've got questions and um yeah. possibly pick up their own can in line yeah so um the the good thing always is that that we're we're open for any discussion yes of course we're a manufacturer and a supplier for canning lines uh, but we, we we do way more. We want to help breweries go to the next level and not like we all need to be the biggest. No next level in quality, in quantity. Um, if a brewery does well, uh, they can hire more people. They can employ more people. So if anyone likes to talk about discussions like this and maybe I said something wrong, maybe I hit some really good points, I don't know. Let us know, and we're open for a discussion. We're helping uh, a Brulee's. Brulee's helping us. So if you want to get in touch with us, just go to wildgoosefilling.eu. Um, 
if there are really people with with really strong Brexit feelings, go to wildgoosefilling.com. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you totally yeah, went there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and 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 soon we will do some more installations in the UK as well. We're uh, soon going to the uh, guys from Great Western Brewing, and they're opening a new facility, a new brand called uh, Hop Union. Uh, we're installing a brand new uh, Wild Goose Fusion. So that's counter pressure technology. And what we always offer is that uh, if you don't want to talk to me or after a couple hours, you say, okay, Laurent, that's enough. Now I want to see something different. We always say, go to a brewery that is packaging um, every week or every month. Just schedule something. Maybe they're already your friends. Maybe you never talk to them, but just see a line in action and talk to people about the challenges they face and the awesome things they faced when they went to Kent. Amazing. Yeah. Brill, thank you. Cheers. Likewise. Well, it's that time again at the bar for another week of the Hot 4 podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify and all other good platforms. Be sure to visit hotforward.beer to find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. We make your beer look as good as it tastes and we help you brew up a better business through branding, marketing and consultancy. Remember to follow us on social media at Hot Forward Beers and for another week. Cheers. Cheers.